Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey everyone, you might remember me from Teen Mom 2, but my 15 minutes is almost up. So I'm back with another podcast. I'm your barely famous host, Kale Lowry, and I'm catching up with people from my past, putting my exes on the hot seat, and chatting with TikTokers, influencers, and other reality stars. Get Weird With Me every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you guys being here and keeping the winds in the sail of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Support the people that help us do these on a regular basis. And uh, this week is no exception. Again, remind you to check out drew.tv for the streaming programs and other pods at .com. Uh, please do go ahead over there. We'd love to have the Corolla um, the Empire <laughs> joining us. Uh, but today is no exception. Uh, this is an opportunity to talk about some really interesting topics. We have as our guest Moisha Hoffman and Yeris, Yeris Yoeli. The book is Hidden Games, coming out on April 5th. You can pre-order now on Amazon. The Surprising Power of Game Theory to Explain Irrational Human Behavior. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. And Hi. I'll give you a little bit of their pedigree. Both are PhD in economics from Chicago. They spent five years at Harvard's Evolutionary Dynamics uh, program, which I'm interested in hearing about. And now they are research scientists at the MIT Media Lab and MIT Sloan. Uh, I'm not sure who's at which institution, but uh, I imagine you're studying the same stuff. Is that accurate? Absolutely. All right. Fair enough. So I think I think the place to start is to just one of you to explain to people what game theory is, as far as we understand it, uh, where it operates in the human system, so to speak. Uh, and why it's important. You got it. Um, maybe I'll start. Uh, game theory is a math toolkit started developing in the 1940s, um, designed to understand uh, decision-making in contexts where what I do depends on what you choose, what you choose depends on what I do, and, and uh, our sort of motives interact in this way. Game theory was designed to solve, help us solve these kinds of problems to understand them better. Um, it's usually used. Go ahead. No, no, please. It's usually used. It's usually used to understand the behavior of actors like um, firms who are deciding how to bid in spectrum auctions or how they're going to set their prices in the marketplace. And here you have this this problem that I just described, where where the the price that I set depends on the price you set, and vice versa. Um, what we are interested in doing is using game theory to understand a more personal set of problems, uh, questions related to people's sense of aesthetics or rights or ethics or, uh, um, and so uh, altruism, things like that. Um, and so we're trying to understand uh, those kinds of questions, questions ab uh, about people's psychology, but using the same mathematical toolkit. And so the underlying thing that's going on here is that we're, we're going to assume that there's a key assumption in game theory that there's optimization going on of some kind. And um, for questions like how do firms price, that's not so surprising. You know, the firms are sitting around figuring out the optimal price. But in, in cases where you're thinking about people's sense of aesthetics, their, their sense of rights, what they think is right or wrong, you know, they're not choosing that. They're not choosing what's, what they think is beautiful. It just kind of happens. And so we have to, to try to understand what, where is the optimization coming from and why is it legitimate to, to even use game theory in the first place. 
typically, we think about that as coming from uh, learning, that people are optimizing, even though they're not consciously aware of it, because they're constantly learning. They're getting feedback from the world. They're looking around them to see what's successful. Um, they're, they're literally getting reinforcement in one direction or another. Um, and that uh, tends to shape their beliefs. It tends to shape uh, what, they, what they like and uh, ultimately allows us to use this toolkit, even though they might not be aware of the optimization in the first place. And, and to be fair to this conversation, you guys come from serious quant backgrounds, but we're going to be talking sort of waving our hands, <clears throat> I imagine, uh, talking about really the philosophy of game theory or the sort of the story, the narrative of game theory rather than the, the quantitative theory, which gets intense ex- extremely quickly, <laughs> particularly when you move past two, two players. So uh, is that accurate or can we, we – go ahead. We, we've tried very hard um, and we wish that more game theorists would do this. I mean I guess some do but, but we wish more of like uh, go, going away from all of that really complicated math and like getting at the, the very fine-grained insights. Um, you, you know the key core ideas that are, that are driving, the, uh, driving the models and that we can extract from all, all the really good work that's come before but bring it, bring it down to earth to like the things that are robust, easy to explain, very you know pervasive. I'm going to make you guys do the prisoner's dilemma just so people understand the classic, you know, whatever. Just so, just so we're all on the same page. I know that you must just – boring is probably not a strong enough description for you guys what that is. But I think for people that are just are new to game theory, I think it's important to sort of expel that out. But before we do, my thinking, listening to your description of, you know, what you're doing – immediately flips over to evolutionary forces, right? The optimization of survival. And it's, it's, you were sort of tilting at that a little bit in your description, but getting back into the fine grain again, you mentioned learning as the process whereby that's optimized. And yet you talked about something like beauty, which is more of a motivational system or, or a reward system how does that – how do you differentiate the different systems in the brain? You know, it's not all learning. Some of it is already uh, in us from – you know, biologically from an ev- – evolution already worked it through and optimized it to put, you know, uh, a, a reward system in that says eat, reproduce, survive. And that seems to get into the world of beauty and morality and other things as well. How do you differentiate learning from motivation? You mind if I go? So, so uh, e-, e focused on um, uh, on learning as like one mechanism where, whereby we get to uh, op- optimality without conscious awareness. But but you're absolutely right to point out that um, uh, uh, that biological evolution is a separate mechanism that also leads to optimality without conscious awareness. And and, and in our book, we we actually you know we, we certainly do. Uh, do justice uh, to both. Uh, they're both certainly relevant for explaining things like aesthetics and, and morality. Um, I think the reason why he chose to, to highlight learning there and why we, we tend to put more emphasis on it in, in the book is just because for, for a lot of the, the things that really puzzle us, it's harder to give a biological explanation for it. Um, and, uh, um, and also it's like less new. Like, you know, we all kind of know uh, I don't know, there are some things that we're physically attracted to because, you know, back in, you know, way back when it helped us reproduce or something like, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, yes, there's everybody, everybody kind of knows. Uh, and I mean, I'm glad that people have done the research and have talked about it, but 
you know, that's not where you need, uh, you know, a, a new book necessarily. And also, also for many of these things, it's easy to tell that it's, it's probably not too much biological uh, evolution going on relative to, to social or individualized learning because of the, the time scales. So if you think about morality, for instance, like, yeah, some things about morality are, are, are probably ingrained. For instance, the fact that we, you know, treat our kin better than, than strangers. Like that's, you know, kin selection, biological evolution. Again, that's like, you know, like sexual preferences. So, so those are the things a lot of biologists have thought quite about and have good insights on. But, but um, that's a small subset of our, our morals. And in particular, that's kind of the subset that's fairly rigid and fixed. Whereas other things, like for instance, um, you know, how do you treat somebody who's got a different skin color than you or, or a different religion? That's, that's something that's, that's not the same across, you know, cultures or time or, or even communities within our culture. Those are things that are very, very malleable. Um, you know, who's in your in-group and how do you treat out-group members? The, those, are, those are aspects of our morality that, that fluctuate so much. Uh, it's, it's very, very hard to kind of pin that on the biological timescale. And you really have to kind of learn, look at uh, other at learning processes to understand how these things get shaped. And if you want to apply game theory and talk about optimality, it, like you're, you're going to need a, a different justification than biological evolution for that kind of stuff. And like, you know, for aesthetics too, again, you know, there's some aspects of our aesthetics. I don't know. Maybe we like landscapes because they remind us of, you know, safe places on the savannah. I don't know. People can spend stories about that kind of thing. That subset of our you know, innate aesthetic preferences, uh, you know, uh, 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 maybe has a biological explanation. But, you know, we didn't biologically evolve to like Picasso. Um, like, uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of modern art is like, looks kind of weird when you first look at it and doesn't look appealing to people who aren't trained or, or part of our culture. And, and, and for, for that aspect of our aesthetics, uh, I think you're going to need a different story. And so, so particularly like when things are very malleable, when things are very context, context or culture specific, uh, you're, you're going you're gonna to need to focus more on learning to get your optimization than, than biological evolution. So, so back to E then, I, I prefer you call you that so I don't screw up your name. I heard Moshe say that, so I'm going I'm to adopt that for the purposes of this conversation. Uh, it, so, so I think anybody listening to Moshe would go, oh, I get how learning – could affect these topics you're discussing. How does game theory drop into that? Um, once you kind of have a um, something going on that's driving and that's doing optimization, then now you can start to disentangle the motives that are intertwined using the game theory. So there's, there's various tools one could use to try to understand people's motives. And sometimes, sometimes maybe game theory isn't the right one, but for a lot of the, the questions we, we turned out to be interested in, it turns out that that game theory is a, a useful toolkit. Um, so if you're trying to understand you were talking about uh, the prisoner's dilemma earlier, then once you kind of get that there is a, cooperation problem going on. This is fundamentally a, a situation where um, I can help you and you can potentially help you and there's some, some mutual benefit, but that there's some costly action that has to go on in order to do that. Then you can characterize that using the simple toolkit um, and you can start analyzing what the way uh, 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 the quote players might behave um, and the features uh, of the uh, behavior that might be stable over time, what features it might have, and so on and so forth. And why don't you go ahead and describe Prisoner's Dilemma so, so people get what we're talking about. 
Do you want to switch three for a minute? What's that? Well, you, you, you mind if I take this one? Yeah, you got it. So, so uh, you mentioned cooperation, and, and and I think we're going to avoid the, the standard spiel for prisoners Islam because I, I guess people have many people have heard it before, or even if they haven't, I'm I'm going to give a, a slightly different take, which is the, the prisoner Islam, like like you said, is just just a simple way to model cases where I can pay a cost to benefit you, and and I guess you know the game is typically you know symmetric in that you also can pay a cost to benefit me, so so we, we both. We both can either act selfishly or act pro-socially. And, and uh, what's, what's weird about this situation is we're both better off if we act pro-socially. But, uh, you know, if, any, if anybody's, you know, optimizing, it, that would typically lead to kind of like the more self-interested behavior that, that leaves us both worse off. And, and, and what's puzzling here is, like, we all know that people do act pro-socially in the world. Well, there is cooperation. And, and as you as, and many of your listeners know that, like, you kind of need to cooperate to have a, a, a good life. And, you know, a, lots of cooperation needed to happen for us to get here. And so, so cooperation is, is, is crucial, but it's from a game theoretic perspective, you know, the game theory kind of highlights the puzzle. If everybody acts self-interestedly, you end up in a, in a worse situation. So that's, the prisoners of a kind of helps you capture that, that puzzle. So, like, you know, you could use the, the math. It's, it's the most trivial game there is. If we each pay a cost to benefit the other player, like, the only, the only strategy that, that would survive that would be optimal is if we each act selfishly and both of us are worse off. So, so we both defect in, in the language of game theory. And so more rich models are kind of needed to explain where cooperation comes from and, and how it works. And game theory not only can point out the initial puzzle of cooperation, but it could, you know, if you enrich the models, you can gain a lot of insight on, on how you get past this initial paradox. So, you know, the classic solution is, well, if we play the game repeatedly, then you can build up kind of relationships of like, you know, the classic tip for tat where like, well, if I cooperate with you, you cooperate with me. Like, turns out that can stabilize cooperation. So if we play the, the prisoners of we each pay a cost to benefit the other, but more than one time, many, many times over and over, then we can develop kind of like a stable cooperative relationship. But what we try to do is also focus on, you know, what, what, aspects of cooperation will emerge in like games like this. So if you add other bells and whistles to the game. So, you know, what if what if we play the prisoner's dilemma over and over, but each time we have we might not have perfect information about whether the other player cooperated. So we have, you know, we we, we now have uh, you know, sometimes you don't get perfect signals. So you might you might not be able to fully observe whether the other player defected. Or maybe you can observe it, but they can have like some plausible excuse about whether they or not they defected. How does that shape cooperation and what kind of what kind of morals or sense of altruism do we expect to emerge in situations like this where you have the prisoners that are repeated and possibly with imperfect information and things things like plausible excuses and and, and imperfect observability stuff like that well I, I want to go further down that rabbit hole but but you, but I first want to back up a minute and you, you put a you put a actual value judgment on cooperate cooperate and said it's pro-social right? That that cooperate it ends up in a pro sociality. Yeah, that's if you're. Yeah. that's if you're in the criminal in group. That's not pro social for the guys that have you in prison. See, it's actually the opposite of pro. Yeah. It's antisocial. Yeah, it, it actually undermines yeah. the sociality of these the other group that's holding you. Uh, how do we understand? Right. How do we understand that? Why is one pro social and the other is is you know what I, mean? I think you get the question I'm asking, which I is totally do. I totally do. Let, let me explain you it. Wanna, I'm, I'm explain it more clearly. Or? I want to explain it more clearly for the audience. So, mm-hmm. so somebody's in prison. Two guys are in prison. You can either cooperate or defect. And, and defect means you you're. If I get the language right. Defect means you're 
you're actually cooperating with the the prison, right? You're cooperating with the Im- imprisoning people. Yeah. And, and so cooperate, cooperate means you shut your mouth, you don't say anything. And as a result, both players end up with a lesser prison sentence, let's say, for, as just for the, for the sake of the uh, model. Um, but if those two criminals are seriously problematic people for the group that are trying to hold them or convict them of what they've done, that is not pro-sociality. That, that it's just in-group and out-group behavior more than anything else. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, cooperation often has this feature that you might. Um, the way that we define it is we, we've we've kind of oversimplified it, and we've defined it from the perspective of the two quote players playing. Yeah. yeah. But there are more people involved, and and sometimes the cooperative act uh, for those two players, the thing that would make them them better off will be at the expense of society as a whole. This is a general feature of cooperation. So very good examples of cooperation come from the literature on collusion, where you have um, uh, multiple uh, actors acting together to benefit each other. But of course, they're doing it at the expense of everybody else who's paying higher prices. In um, In the less conscious domain, things like racism are very much like collusion. So what we're doing is we're cooperating for the benefit of the in-group. Yeah. And obviously, um, that's going to lead to, to uh, some folks being worse off. And then the questions that we'll typically add to that is, well, what does racism tend to depend on? Uh, how do we tend to be uh, racist? Um, and what, what does the definition of in-group tend to, to, to uh, have to, to take into consideration? Uh, things like that. So, so we'll often use the game theory to gain more insight on that. And, and it also, I'm imagining, I'm hoping that it also suggests solutions because you're, you know, when you have explanatory models, usually you can come up with ways to work against it, so to speak. So how, yeah, what, what, yeah. how do, so what do we do? So, so I, I get it. I get that's one of the elements in building racism. How, what do we do? So well, one of the things that we think about in the case of racism is that not, not entirely, but the one key motivation for racism is that it's kind of norm enforced meaning that there is this, this sort of cooperative element to it, and uh, racist behavior is uh, motivated by the threat of uh, punishment from other in-group members. If you fail to be discriminatory towards out-group members, you yourself will be punished by the in-group members. Um, and so what we'll do is... Hey, hey, can you just... You want to give an example of that just so that people... Um, uh- people have a sense yes so if you think about like the jim crow south if you're a businessman uh in jim crow south it was in your interest to sell shoes to whoever walked into the store but um not if there's a gang of uh angry white dudes outside who are going to beat up on you and possibly worse if you do that so so suddenly this behavior that would otherwise be in your interest is may not into your interest and in particular it's may not in your interest by the threat of punishment Mm. That, um, that kind of discrimination uh, works the way any other norm enforcement would work. And so what we'll do is we'll look at norm enforcement and we'll say sometimes we want to encourage norm enforcement and sometimes we want to discourage it. And the same, it's like the flip side of a coin. The same things that would allow us to encourage it, would, if you do the opposite, you'll typically uh, be able to discourage it. So when it comes to encouraging norms, we typically talk about three things. One is the behavior in question has to be observable to others. Otherwise, they can't punish or reward it. Um, The second is the behavior has to be defined in such a way that um, uh, there's no uh, ambiguity over whether one has violated the norm or not. Ambiguous things will not get punished or rewarded because there isn't really a consensus uh, around that. This is related to the game theoretic concept of common knowledge, which we can come back to. 
And then the third one is that um, there tends to, there needs to be very clear expectations. Everybody kind of has to be on the same page and people have to know what they're expected to do and what they're expected to punish or reward. Those things, if they're present, that enables these uh, normative behaviors. If we can, uh, we can also jam the signal by making things less observable, introducing ambiguity and plausible deniability and mixing up the expectations. And so if we wanted to fight a norm enforced uh, racism, those are the kinds of things that we would try to do. It's a little confusing to me because I feel like we live in a time when we we have gone the uh, we're, we're trying to go the other way, and it feels like we're doing the thing. Y- y- I, I'm getting confused. Uh, yeah, I, 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 do you mind if I? Yeah, please. Well, sorry, I'll let. Like, well, I, I mean, well, it, I, I, the, the, I, Jim Crow South just doesn't. My basic sort of frame is. Jim Crow South, I, I get it as a paradigm, but it certainly doesn't apply to the present moment. So given that things are uh, maybe maybe non-observable, that's kind of the interesting territory, but there's clear expectations the other way that you'll be punished if you if you engage in racist behavior. Why do we still have it? Uh, um, so, so I think you're absolutely right that like in, in many communities, there are strong norms against racism. Uh, um, and, and to some extent, that, that's kind of the flip side of what Eris is saying. Those are norms that we might want to promote, and you might want to use some, some of those tools to do it. But um, I, I guess we should be clear that, like, uh, um, there are conflicting norms depending on the community and depending on the context. So, so for instance, you know, even uh, you know, me and Eris, as uh, two Jewish guys, were were in communities where, where there's strong norms and pressure for us to date other Jewish guys, uh, Jew, Jewish uh, girls or um, guys, or and, guys, as the case may be. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, there's strong norms against that too, but that's oh, yeah. a separate issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but uh, um, so so there's still in group favoritism there, and and you learn that our culture has gotten you know has pretty strong norms at least if you're in the liberal communities against um, in-group favoritism for people who share your skin color, but not so much for people who share your, your religion or, or other ethnic markers. Um, like uh, uh, um, it's considered more acceptable, you know, if you're a minority to help out other members of your, of your minority community, you know, the dominant white community maybe has, yeah. But um, so, so uh, but, but uh, I mean, of course, in, in many places or, or even subsets of the U.S., there are still, there's still encouragement to help other, you know, uh, quote, real Americans. Um, and, you know, you might, you, might, you might not be as overt about it because it, it's, it's not so acceptable in the, in the wider, uh, uh, you know, Western liberal uh, mores. But, like, there are ways that we can still try to help out other people who are, quote, like us um, in, in, in maybe less explicit way that they still get norm enforced. So, so, so there still might be some, you know, some sense in which it's really good if we help out people who, who share our religion or share our ethnicity or uh, in, in maybe some pockets still share, share our uh, skin color. Well, I think you've heard me talk about this before, but ED is more common than most people think. In fact, more than 52% of men between the ages of 40 and 70 will experience some form of ED. The benefits of treatment can help you reconnect your partner and rediscover, well, the connection. Roman Ready is confidence personified. It's the self-assurance that comes with knowing you're prepared for the moment when intimacy arrives. Roman's system is completely confidential and totally discreet. No big logos or package labels, anything like that. With Roman, you get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for erectile dysfunction, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. 
a U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. Whole process, straightforward, convenient, discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Drew and complete that online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today. Connect with a U.S. licensed healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Drew today. And if you're prescribed, you'll get $15 off your first month of ED treatment. Make sure you're ready to have confidence and control this fall. Roman ready. How many of you have been thinking about a backyard makeover? That's right. Maybe you have room for a pool. Well, you're going to love this idea. Your family and friends will too. Get a Michael Phelps Swim Spa by Master Spas. That's right. A Michael Phelps Swim Spa combines the benefits of pool with the therapy of a hot tub. comes in a variety of sizes to complement any yard. Michael Phelps Swim Spas by Master Spas have a water current so you can swim, do aquatic exercise. Kids love it. They will reinvent family time. The water buoyancy will relieve pressure on aching joints. You can enjoy pure relaxation. And since it's heated, you can use it year-round. Michael Phelps Swim Spas are 100% made in the U.S. by Master Spas, the world's largest swim spa manufacturer. You're going to love it. Go to masterspas.com, put in the promo code DREW to save $1,000 on a Michael Phelps Swim Spa or $500 on a Master Spas hot tub. That is masterspas.com, promo code DREW. Well, Calibrate, it works. They combine doctor-prescribed, FDA-approved medication with lifestyle changes to improve metabolic health. Calibrate's earliest members lost an average of 14% of their body weight. Over 20 years of research shows that the combination of GLP-1 medication and coaching improves metabolic health, long-term drive, sustained weight loss. They provide comprehensive wellness plans that are personalized to your need. Your weight does not affect your willpower. Get back in control with Calibrate, and you get $50 off a one-year metabolic reset when you use the promo code DREW at joincalibrate.com. Again, it's not a diet. The program was designed to activate metabolic health and treat the underlying biologies that contribute to weight excess. And when you start that Calibrate journey, your team is with you every step of the way. At your biweekly one-on-one appointments with your Calibrate coach, you'll discuss curriculum, goal setting, tracking, working together to create a new day-to-day that is sustainable and enjoyable and not painful. And then once you've started your GLP-1 medication and coaching, you will join other Calibrate members as part of a support community. Again, you can get $50 off when you use the code DREW at joincalibrate.com. As I said, your weight does not reflect your willpower. Get back in control with Calibrate and $50 off the one-year metabolic reset when you use promo code DREW at joincalibrate.com. You know, it's it's fine. I'm I'm just thinking about my own uh, biases and things. And and I literally have a hard time with the not-like-us concept because I live in Southern California where us – is 80 different ethnicities and skin colors and facial structures and religions. It's just, it's, yeah. I, I, that's us. <laughs> that, that's us in yeah. Southern California. Well, so I, so I not like us is like, well, that's us. We're, we're a million different things here. Uh, and so it, that's a, it's a concept, you know, it's weird. It, it biases me a little bit whenever people bring it up. Yeah. Go ahead. But, well, I think part of, part of the message is that like, you know, who we consider us and who we consider acceptable discriminate against is so uh, uh, culturally dependent that you're right that in our community, like us is supposed to not depend on skin color, but it's important to keep in mind that that's, that's, you know, very much not a universal concept. And that very much is, uh, is a norm that, that, that can vary a lot. And, and if, if you want to understand, you know, when racism is strongest and, and maybe there's 
stated it a bit too, too strongly or, or, or implied that this is the only form of racism or the only aspect of racism. But certainly there is an, a, an aspect and a component of racism that does get known for us. And that tends to be the, 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 the type of racism that can get extremely, extremely dangerous, that can be used to, to create genocides or apartheid states. Um, and and uh, can, whenever you look at those, those extreme cases, those are going to look very different from, say, your own morals about race. Um, and largely that's going to be reinforced by your community where you would get severely punished if you um, right. overtly were, right. were, were discriminatory. Whereas if you're in Nazi Germany and you're not discriminated against Jews, like you, you're subject to punishment. Right, right, so, right. so, you know, what you- again, the extremes, I get it. I get it on the outline thing. But let, let me let me ask a different question. And I think, E, this is more in your zone, I think. Um, which is something I've always wondered, and I'm wondering if game theory helps us understand this in some way that I, an insight gives us an insight that I, I'm not aware of. Which is that, and first let me state a uh, an, uh, an assumption that genetic diversity improves the health of a population. Is that something we agree with? That genetic admixturing, the more genetic, the more genetic mixture mixing, the more the more far afield the the genetic uh, sort of. Um, uh, sources are that then admixture the the better it is for a population overall. That that's a biological principle that I was reared on. Is that still something that's safe to say? You're shaking your head. Uh, not my expertise. Okay, yeah, maybe we'll more knows more about it than I do. Well, I, I, I've heard that too. Okay, let me, let's state it as assumption, and it is only an assumption. It's, let's say it's not proven. If if that is true, why did this? It's so mysterious to me that in groups and out groups developed early on in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness. It seems like the the worst thing for the genetic health of these little populations, and again, we can argue about how many people, how many homo sapiens were in the original groups and things like that, but but why did that develop? It seems like from optimization standpoint of evolutionary pressures, we should be, and maybe we did, maybe we did more than we know. We went into other camps and stole women, which did happen a lot. Uh, as a way of getting the the genetic mixing uh, to to you know to be improved, I mean, I, again, just you pointed any uh, monarchy that is inbred, it goes bad very very quickly. You you want to have more. Again, that's the people point at those sorts of things as evidence that genetic admixturing is better. Um, why did we develop such crazy standards about in and out? What 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 did that to us? I'm not sure I have a, a answer on the tip of my tongue. The, um, there is a lot of cooperation that kind of requires heavy investment um, to really kind of benefit that you need uh, to be able to spend some time with each other. Um, and it's often the case that there might be a temptation for somebody to walk into a community or something like that and kind of exploit the fact that the community is awfully cooperative and then not turn around and give back to it. Um, and so there, there becomes a, uh, an incentive in, for those kinds of cooperative behaviors to wall off the community a bit mm. um, to enable that kind of cooperation. And I, I uh, suspect that's uh, part of it. It could be things, um, you know, I'm thinking about things like warfare or uh, investment in uh, marriages and things like that at the very basic level. Yeah. Um, and then obviously this extends to things like guilds and so on. Today, nowadays, we have this kind of stuff on professional levels as well. Um, so that's how I'm thinking about this. Um, and so I think that there is something of a trade-off and probably, you know, I don't, I don't know much about the importance of genetic diversity, but it could be that there is 
genetic diversity is important, but, but obviously we have some of it already within a community and that's enough. And then there's these other incentives as well that are, that are pushing us in the direction of uh, walling off the community and that those might be uh, sufficiently important. That you, you, get you know that what it makes me off. think? It makes me think that, uh, and I never think about this in terms of game theory, but time may be an important factor. In, in other words, under certain pressures at certain periods of history for certain time frames, closing off is more advantageous. And at other periods, it might be more advantageous to open up. Um, and there are certainly lots of evidence of closed versus open societies, <clears throat> and you need to look no further than the you know populations that are under s- stress or attack, so to speak. Just look at the mafia; they closed off, really closed off, and it was all about cooperation. And so, that just sort of evidence suggests that the more threat from without, the more closed. But it, that we don't necessarily stay that way in more um, clement environments, so to speak. Is that, is that yeah, I agree with all that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. <clears throat> Unless you wanted to move on, I, I, I guess one more point on this topic. All right, one which more. Is that, oh, I don't, I, I don't mind if you want to move on. No, no, one more, one more point. Go ahead. Well, uh, you know, just like just like how in the prisoner's dilemma, there's a temptation to defect. You know, when there's two players, and the cooperative thing might be better for both of us. That could be true among you know the wider wider community. So so even if you know. Uh, if you know all the European countries could get together and have you know a European Union, you know that might be better than constantly fighting wars. Uh, there's still a temptation to defect, and that, that's you know it's sometimes hard to get around that problem. And, and so you know it's the same it's the same thing with like any any other uh, uh, collusion issue. Uh, uh, sorry, any other collective action issue is like oftentimes you know you might just want to have. Uh, 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 you, there's, there's going to be a conflict of interest. And so your own in-group might then, you, you know, uh, uh, cheat and misbehave and then try to harm or exploit or take advantage of, right. of another out-group instead of what? Right. We're going we're gonna to change the name of Brexit to defects it. So uh, <laughs> uh, you propose a couple of uh, topics. I, I imagine these are from the book and I want to get into them a little bit. Um, why are some people more principled than others? This is a topic that didn't make it to the book. Oh, even better. I love it. Let's do it here. Um, there are so, – so the, the fundamental puzzle is there's some folks who seem to be making decisions based on some sort of higher principle. Um, we tend to think of that as being pretty admirable. A, um, there's a variety of examples that one can give from history. So, for instance, if you look at founders of religion, Martin Luther seems to have been doing it, quote, for the right reasons. It seems to have been principally minded. Henry VIII, maybe not so much. Uh, he just kind of needed to switch lives. Um, and, you know, nowadays, maybe we can look at two CEOs and compare their, their motivations. Tim Cook uh, seems to be fairly principally minded around questions around uh, of the environment, employee welfare, and maybe even privacy, although that's a more controversial one. Um, but you contrast him with Jeff Bezos, it looks like he's more just kind of like focused on running a really profitable business unless you are uh, bringing in these higher principles in mind. So why would somebody do that? Um, and then there's kind of a, an associated set of puzzles that go along with this. Like um, one of the markers of principle is that somebody really can't deviate it from it ever, even once, even when it's really worth it, or you're like, ah, that person's a hypocrite. They don't really believe in that thing. 
and it kind of just like forever taints them. Um, there's the famous story with Scalia um, kind of deviating from his uh, principles when it came to Bush for score. Um, that kind of um, makes one look at his record a little bit with a, a slanty eye. Um, so, so uh, that's one example. Another example is that we tend to, to often think of people who are, uh, making decisions, uh, we're often really attentive to what they're basing their decision off of, uh, and uh, think of people who are making their decision in kind of too deliberate a way and too careful a way is like that. That get, makes us turned off, and we're not so um, so uh, uh, um, trusting of them. And so the the question these tend to like also be features of principal decision making that, that we'd like to understand. So how, that's that's how, the puzzle how, again. Yeah, how's game theory figuring into that? I'm not, I'm not hearing the game uh-huh. theoretical frame. Yeah. So, um, so now, uh, once we have that in place, what we typically will do is uh, uh, kind of strip it away and try to understand uh, what the, the motives are at play. Like we were saying earlier, the in, depending on exactly what we're trying to answer, one might think about, for instance, the, the standard repeated prisoner's dilemma. Uh, it can, will describe why people are cooperative, but it doesn't really get at this question of why they might be ignoring uh, certain kinds of information and why people might be really attentive to that. So we'll add some bells and whistles to that repeated prisoner's dilemma to try to get at that particular question. So in this particular case, what we'll do is we'll vary the costs and benefits, and we'll also give people before they move a chance to look at those costs and benefits. Um, And what we learn is that under certain conditions, and the game theory kind of gives you a little bit of math that tells you when, um, What you can uh, find is that it's beneficial for people not to even look at the costs and benefits and that they'll only be trusted and people will only want to engage with them in a relationship when they don't look at the costs and benefits, irrespective of whether they would have cooperated or not. Hmm. They're they're actually attending to whether they're looking at the costs and benefits in the first place. And so the the game theory kind of elucidates the, the important role of looking and the conditions under which it would happen. And that kind of ties back to that set of questions that we framed earlier around uh, why would we attend to the decision-making process and whether they're actually abiding by the principle for the right reason and so on in this kind of Kantian way. And, and, and uh, you packed a lot into that. And, and this is something you study in the lab? We can. Uh, we kind of do three things. One is we'll sit down and write this kind of model like I just described. Two is we'll try to find ways to uh, develop uh, laboratory experiments that will tap into the psychology and kind of give evidence for the game theoretic model. And then three is we'll look for existing evidence, either that others have have developed in laboratory experiments or um, from the real world, from uh, real world data, and even from just, uh, you know, anecdotes like a comparison of Henry VIII and, and but uh, if you're interested, uh, maybe you're not, but if you're interested, we, we could describe like, you know, an experiment that we would do related to, you know, principal behavior. Yeah, um, yeah go ahead. And, and you, you packed so, in deontology de and Kant. So I'm curious. Yeah. yeah so so I, I, you, you try to drop that in as though it had no significance, but I think it does. So go ahead. T- tell me. Yeah. Well, okay. So this experiment, maybe we'll have to discuss a little bit more afterwards, you know, the relationship to deontology and Kant. But let let me tell you the experiment first and how it relates to to what it teaches us about principal behavior. Um, So uh, the the key point that we wanted to make is that just, you know, if you make a decision and, uh, and, and, okay, actually I'll tie it into Kant right now, which is, you know, Kant, Kant says, if you walk into, you know, my butcher shop, 
And I think about, okay, I'm about to give you a slab of meat and I could uh, claim that it's a, a kilogram when it's really only, you know, 0.9 of a kilogram. And like, you know, before doing this, I might ask myself, well, what are the chances that you'll find out that you'll be looking at the scale that, you know, you'll then stop coming in here and you'll tell other people and it'll hurt my business. So that's one way that I could decide. And maybe after thinking about that, I'm like, okay, it's not worth it. I'll just tell you the honest way. Okay. Or, or in fact, I, I could just, and this is what Kant says I should do, you know, don't lie. Don't even think about these costs and benefits because like, that's just the wrong way to think about other human beings. You're not, you're not like a source of like revenue or re- reputation. You're just a human being and human beings shouldn't be lied to. Okay. Both, both these ways of thinking, you know, the instrumental, like, oh, is this worth it because of the costs and benefits or no, it's wrong. Like those are two different ways of thinking about the same like outcome, which is I don't lie. So at the end of the day, I might make the same choice, but one, one way to do it is a way that's consistent with what Kant says we should be doing. Uh, and it, it, you know, don't ever use people. Don't ever treat people merely as a means versus another way is, well, I might end up making the right choice, but after this long, deliberative, inappropriate uh, thought process. Okay. And so you could ask, why, why does Kant distinguish between these two different ways of making the right decision? One that involves like a thought about how it might benefit me to not cheat you versus just not doing it. Okay. And so, so in other words, why is it that we care about people's preferences? Why is it that we think it's wrong for people to, to even consider the costs and benefits of doing the right thing? And okay, so here's a simple experiment that tries to get at that issue, consistent with the repeated game story that Ayers was saying, which is suppose that I, I asked you, um, you know, here's uh, uh, here's two options. You could either take um, take two dollars, and Ayers will um, will lose uh, um, you know three dollars, let's say. Or you could um, uh, uh, um, you could take nothing, and Ayers will get nothing. So that's kind of the more pro-social thing. And so this is, you know, a standard kind of dictator game where you can kind of choose to do the selfish thing or not. And like, you know, very often people might, you know, choose to do the right thing. Okay, fine. But let, let's now change the game a little bit. And this is what's new in the experiment. And let's say that you don't actually know which of these options will benefit you, or maybe you don't even know how much it'll benefit you to choose the, 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 the selfish thing. So maybe it'll benefit you by $3, or maybe it'll benefit you by $10. Okay. And you don't know, but you can look. Okay. And so, so this is, this kind of relates to the thought process of, oh, you can calculate how much would it benefit me to, to rip you off as your butcher, or how much could it harm me if like, if I rip you off and you catch me that that's experimentally manip- uh, uh, captured by this question of, do you check how much you could benefit from, from choosing the selfish option in this simple, what, what's called a dictator. Okay. And so, so we can, we can first ask are people willing to, to look at this information and moreover, um, what will other people think if they know that you looked at that information? And that, that's what's key. So, so first of all, people, people generally don't want to look. They generally want to make the moral choice and, 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 and they prefer to make it without, without checking how much it would benefit them um, or how much it would harm them. Can I interrupt you? And, I, I, some of that, yeah. I, I wonder how much of that is just our, our brain's limited capacity or laziness, which is – you know, you start you start you know calculating in your head. You're I'm just better off if I just cooperate. I'm just better off. I'm safer. Yeah. It's almost a safety yeah. issue. It's it's a it's a lazy safer alternative that ends up being right. Could be, could be. But uh, let me tell you, let me tell you some aspect. So, so that's sometimes going. Yeah. But let me tell you some aspect of the experiment that tells you that that's not the only thing. Going. Okay. 
Because I agree, people are often lazy, and maybe that's that's often. But, but it's it's, la- it's lazy meets motivated by safety. It's both. It's like I'm safer if I just yeah, I, I yeah. can't figure it out, so I'm just safer over here. I'm just safer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It could be, but but here's the deal: if you know that I'm going to find out not just whether you made the moral choice, but whether you looked, um, and afterwards I'm going to decide how much I want to trust you in another in another interaction called the trust game where, where I have the opportunity to give you money that, and then you reciprocate. Okay, so if I'm going to make this choice and, and decide how much I want to trust you and you know in advance I'm going to make that choice. So first of all, I'm more likely to trust you not only if you choose the moral thing, but if you don't look at how much it benefits you. So if you act in the Kantian way, I trust you more. So like Ares was saying before, trust corresponds to, to not just doing the right thing, but doing it for the right reason and, and for not... So that, that's, that's pro-social, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's that's pro-social not just in the outcome, but also in like the thought process. And, in the, and, and moreover... Yeah, you know, sort of the relate relational part too. It's pro-social, like, you know? It, it makes no, relationships more... It, it takes relationships more stable if you can trust people. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Like trust is... Like this aspect of trust yeah. and pr- being principled is, is crucial to developing real deep, yeah, rich yeah, relationships. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. But just to respond to your earlier question... Our point is is not only that I trust you more if you don't if you don't pay attention to the cost and, and you don't look, but but if you know that you're going to have to get my trust, if you know that there's going to be a second interaction where I choose how much to trust you, you're less likely. You're not only more likely to choose the pro social thing here. You're less likely to look at the cost and benefits. So so you're actually more likely to be principled if you know that you need to earn my trust. That, that's the claim. And I think that that's hard to explain with your laziness story because that, that shows that like, that like we're more likely to not look when we know that we're going to need to be trusted. Yeah. It, it's it's weirdly... Say it again, Aries? You would never trust somebody more just because they're lazy. That, that seems well, like I, but, well, I, I don't mean lazy. I don't mean lazy in the sense that truly lazy. It's just an intrinsic property of our brain. We, people are not mm-hmm. you know, people are not critical thinkers typically. They're a little. I, I would call it lazy. It's a little. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't spend yeah. a lot of time problem solving. Well, and, we would we would argue, and I think this experiment helps demonstrate that, which is in the moral domain. Being a critical thinker can often make you less trustworthy. Oh, interesting. And, and, and part of being principled is to be, in some sense, less of a critical thinker. At least in the domain of morality. Interesting. It's kind of a weird cross of Adam Smith and Kant, right? Isn't that sort of these weird mm-hmm. – both of them describe these forces from the perspective that fits kind of a game theoretical frame. Well, you know Jordan Harbinger is our friend, and uh, we love Jordan. He's an interesting guy. He has a crazy life experience in terms of not just his intellectual training, uh, you know, as an attorney, but also multiple languages. And having had an incredible, wild journey himself, where he was, I think, kept, held captive like three times or something. Well, Jordan's show, which Apple named one of the best of 2018, is aimed at making you better informed, more critical thinker. And you can get a sense of how the world actually works. And God knows we all need that in today's world. Each episode is a conversation with fascinating guests. And there is literally something for everyone. For instance, uh, he talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI, offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. Another episode, he has a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of this century. Jordan is always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his guest. And the episodes are loaded with wisdom that you can use legitimately to change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that is not worth checking out, I am not sure what is. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. It's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, 
G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that is the Jordan Harbinger Show. Definitely check it out, particularly if you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. It is the Jordan Harbinger Show. Well, I've talked about AMCN endlessly, and I think you know that health insurance doesn't always cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight. Even when comprehensive coverage is available, you still can get hit with substantial deductions and copays. Protect your family and your finances with an Air Medicare Network member- membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Memberships cost as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day. And that is just, of course, pennies a day. We all know unexpected things happen, and AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that offer code Drew. Sugar Break is the first natural non-prescription support system that can empower you to reduce your sugar intake and manage your insulin levels and healthy blood sugars, not for diabetics, but for those of us that have a sweet tooth and those of us that have uh, relative insulin resistant, this is a really important thing in our health. That's right. It's proven to curb sugar cravings and promote healthy blood sugar management. Sugar Break is backed by a world-class scientific advisory team, including an endocrinologist, the head of an eating and weight disorder clinic at Mount Sinai, and a sugar addiction expert, registered dietitian, pediatric specialist. Sugar Break is not within the pharmaceutical complex and works alongside leading scientists and clinicians to provide the research and evidence necessary. If you have a big sweet tooth, Sugar Break Resist is a natural minty fresh breast strip that blocks sweet taste so you can deal with those cravings. And for daily blood sugar confidence, reduce, add that to your routine. It's called reduce when you're experiencing hormonal conditions. If you're looking to maintain healthy insulin metabolism, try reduce. And reach your goals this year without deprivation using powerful and scientifically tested plant ingredients, stabilized pre-meal capsules, block carbon sugar absorption, up to 40%, so you don't have to go without your favorite foods, and make 2022 the year of healthy blood sugar by adding reduced to your daily routines. All you have to do is visit sugarbreak.com slash Drew and use code Drew for 15% off your entire order. Discount code applies to any product. Again, that is sugarbreak.com slash Drew and code Drew for 15% off. But, but I'm running out of time. I, I, want, I want to get to a couple other things really quick. Are, are you guys familiar with uh, Rene Girard, Mimetic Desire, this theory? Of, you might look into that. It's, it, I, if you're not familiar, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work to go down the path. But his, his central frame, it's, so it's a weird theory, but it, 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 at its core, it's sort of envy, jealousy as the primary motivator of human behavior. And that if somebody wants something, that automatically makes another person want that same thing that there's always this sort of conflict around and there's a lot of and you know you're sure i'm sure you're aware there's a lot of psychological data around happiness and comparing people to one another and the famous cappuccino monkey experiment where the monkey throws the grape back at the you know he's willing to he's willing to forego a reward if if he can punish the other guy which is i think some of what you were talking about with the trust game right isn't that kind of in that game those those issues yeah, yeah, it shows up in games just like that. Uh, that's right. Th- this idea that sometimes we'll harm ourselves in order to punish somebody else if they were mean to us or misbehaved to us. And, right. Yeah. Not even misbehave, like, just yeah. it, it didn't didn't act in a way that 
uh, you know, we found we liked. I mean, sometimes it's being not <laughs> pro-social. Sometimes it's just having something we don't have, uh, and it's envy. It's it's yeah. pure negative emotion. But do you, just mm-hmm. want to say, uh, I've got about five more minutes. I, I wonder if you want to say a little more about that because the, these things all kind of. I, I don't know quite what the point is I'm making, except these these I, these notions and observations are flying around in my head when you talk about the trust the trust game. Mm. You want to go first? Because I'm not uh, asking a question; I'm just leaving it open for comment. If you is there anything more to be said about the trust game? I guess. Talk about our use of experiments, or fairness, or justice. Well, no. In, in other words, is have is there anything? Well, let's, let me ask a straight question. Do you feel you've learned anything from laboratory study of things like trust game that is an insight into mm-hmm. humanity that the average person doesn't know? Yes. Okay. Let's hear um, it. Wow. Where would I begin? I, I think um, – well, oh, it sounds like you have it. Well, I, I mean I have part. Uh, you're welcome to add afterwards maybe, which is, which is uh, one thing that I – book tries to do is we take we take puzzles and oftentimes the well-documented puzzling aspects of our beliefs and preferences and then we try to explain it using these these insights from game theory yeah. the, um, uh, and, and but where, where do we get those puzzles oftentimes by looking at these experimental games so so these experimental games are, are usually really really good at honing in on interesting quirky hard to explain aspects of our preferences like you know why why would you'd be willing to throw away a grape just because the guy next to you got one, yeah. uh, got one that was better. Yeah. And like, like that's a weird aspect of our preference is that it took a really nice experimental design to get it. Yeah. Now that experimental design documents that weird aspect. It doesn't explain it. Uh. And so that's where we usually try to come in. We, we try to then build up a model to better understand where those preferences would come from. But those games are, are usually great at, at telling us and documenting those, those puzzling aspects. And what did you learn? And then, and then pull the curtain back. What you Pull the curtain back. What did you see? What did you learn? What do we need to know? I, I think it depends on the domain. So the, there's the, the use of the experiment that, that uh, Mo just referenced. And the other one is that because you have so much control on an experiment, you can often then like check your explanation. So if you think that, for instance, the reason people are uh, behaving in a principled fashion is because of trust, then you can put them in environments that where trust is more or less important, and you can check to see whether they engage in the behavior more. And so, for instance, this particular experiment that Mo uh, described earlier, I think it does really open your eyes to the fact that this behavior that is really intuitive and that you're engaging in without thinking about, in fact, kind of by definition, actually has mm-hmm. this underlying Function yeah. that's hidden from view. Most yeah, that, that's right. So, so most people, most of your your listeners who, who, who've read Kant, you know, think about it as just like, well, that's just how morality works. So that's just like the right way to, to behave. And what we're trying to do is say, okay, but that came from somewhere. Where could it have come from? Well, here's one possibility. It comes from our need to have trust and the way that trust works. And here's an experiment that helps demonstrate that. All right, that's good. So, so in other words, rather than being deontological, that morality exists out there and we can access it through reason, you're taking a more, somewhat more social, well, anthropological, biological perspective that it, it it's it's mm-hmm. has a source, and and I would I would agree with yeah, that. I would sure. agree with that. Well, gentlemen, and I will adopt your nicknames, Mo E. Thank you very much for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. The book, again, is Hidden Games, The Surprising Power of Game Theory to Explain Irrational Human Behavior. A couple things I didn't get to is is why is love blind? Is that in the book or is that something I have to bring you back to discuss? 
You have to bring us back. All right, I'll have to bring you back to discuss it when the book comes out. Uh, again, uh, are, there, are there websites or anything else for you guys where you want to refer people? Yes, and if you Google us, we will come up because there's only one person named Darius Yoeli in the world, and Moshe Hoffman is uh, uh, pretty good at his uh, at showing up on Google searches. Okay, Moshe M O S H E, and your E is E R E Z Yoeli Y O E L I, and uh, interesting conversation, guys. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. All right, and thank you for not. Uh, bring me into the mathematics which would have uh, lost me in, in, in mere milliseconds i would have been done but uh, i'm fascinated there's there, there's a math to prove it so congratulations we, we put a lot of work in the book too also to, to getting getting rid of the math and getting it in. And, and and just let's just state it the, the math is really the proofs the, you know the math is where where that's right that's the science everybody when people say follow the science they're really talking about is the math there to establish some degree of uh probability that what we're describing is real true whatever word you want to use thanks again thank you thanks here take care guys and we'll see you all next time for calling times and topics follow the show on twitter at dr drew podcast that's d-r-d-r-e-w podcast the music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the dr drew podcast now available on itunes and while you're there don't forget to rate the show the Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com this february on pluto tv we're putting the spotlight on iconic black talent watch your favorite movies like top 5 48 hours and more than a game and drop in to binge black tv classics like the bernie mac show and moesha Pluto TV has hundreds of channels and thousands more movies and TV shows all for free. So download the Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start watching today. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.